You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, it's Jean Chatsky, and as I walk to the studio this morning through the streets of New York City, right past the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, it is very clear that we are in the full swing of holiday seasons. Last week, the world celebrated Giving Tuesday, in addition to Cyber Monday and Black Friday, but Giving Tuesday is the unofficial kickoff for the charitable giving season. And like me, you probably received emails from the causes that you've supported in the past urging you to donate on that particular day because the Gates Foundation was matching two million in donations on Facebook, which in and of itself was pretty amazing. But this is even more amazing. There's a new survey out from Bankrate, and it shows that 22% of American adults actually plan to give more this year. That's a lot, considering the fact that last year, People from 98 countries donated more than $177 million on just Giving Tuesday alone. So we're looking at some big numbers. If you're thinking about your giving plans for this season or you'd like to be thinking about your giving plans for this season, then this show is for you because it's not just about giving back. It is about giving smart. We know, and I've talked about this on the show before, that people who give their time and give their money, they're significantly happier than people who don't. There's a real karma kickback that goes along for the ride. But with over a million different nonprofit and charitable organizations in the United States alone, it's important to know how a charity uses your money to change the world and whether making a particular gift, because we're all dealing with limited resources, whether we're spending our money, investing our money, or giving it away, does it line up with our particular goals? So we've called in an expert, Katarina Rosquetta. Kat Rosquetta is the founding executive director for the Center for High Impact Philanthropy at the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater. I had the pleasure of hearing Kat speak in person at an event that I was at over the past couple of years. And I know she makes this subject make a lot of sense. So I'm happy to have her. Kat, welcome. Thank you so much, Jean. Great to be here. So you gave a TED Talk, which everybody should watch, by the way. And <laughs> and you said something along the lines of, when people first hear the words philanthropy or philanthropists. Their minds jump to big dollars and big organizations, and it doesn't necessarily feel like it could be us. Can you dive into that a little bit more for us? Sure. I mean, I think this is where language matters. And I, I think when a lot of people hear the word philanthropist, they think of big buildings that have usually a guy's last name on it, um, a very wealthy industrialist who founded a major institution in their city. Or maybe if they fast forward to today, they hear that word and they think of a 
billionaire tech entrepreneur who's decided to get more involved in charitable giving. So that's a connotation people have with that particular word. But if you understand it as an individual who is using his or her resources to do more good, then especially in the United States, then we're really talking about 80% of households are doing that. I'm making one charitable, at least one charitable donation each year. And if you look at people in the, um, who have more resources, mm-hmm. so, um, more affluent, we're talking about 98, 99% of people are philanthropically involved. So I think that's the term connotes certain things, but the reality is, um, if you walk into any room in, in the United States and you look to your right and you look to your left, you will be sitting between people who made at least one charitable gift that year. And that makes them philanthropists. In my mind, it does. I mean, if you if you look at what that term means, which is um, it's uh, for the love of a social welfare, mankind, womankind. If you get at the sort of root of that, it's about using your resources to make a better world. And I think, you know, many people are engaged in that. So what's high impact philanthropy and how's that different? Yeah, so um, high impact philanthropy is the practice of um, charitable giving that is characterized by four things. One is um, it's really focused on the social impact, and I can go a little more into what that means. It's a practice that is using all the available information to make smarter decisions. So there's a sense that this isn't just shoot from your hip philanthropy. Mm-hmm. As you said earlier, everybody has limited resources. So it's a, it's a practice of giving where you're really thinking about how can I do the most good with whatever I have? And I think fundamentally, it's it's about um, being willing to learn as you go, right? The causes, the issues that um, charitable givers are trying to address, that philanthropy is trying to address. Sadly, they've existed for a long time. You know, we're talking about things like poverty or homelessness, and so there's got to be a little humility in how you approach this um, so that you can, you know, we can be a better giver at age 60 than we were at age 40 than we were at age 20. It really is about the practice of, of trying to do more and more good with whatever you have. Well, when you talk about making smart decisions, to me, and maybe it is a factor of it being this time of year, the end of year, where, you know, when I look at my mailbox, my snail mailbox, and even yeah. my email box, but they're full of two things. They're full mm. of catalogs and people telling me I can get a great deal if I go shopping at a certain place. Uh-huh. And they're full of pitches from charities, some of which I support on a regular basis and some of yeah. which I, I don't, but my friends do, which uh-huh. makes giving very reactive for a lot of people. Yes. I know, and I've heard people say, you know, it should be proactive. You should make Uh a plan for what you want to do, and then you should Uh follow that plan. That Uh seems like a lot of work. Yeah, um, it can be. And there are a couple of ways to think about it that we found has helped. So one is, remember, philanthropy plays lots of different roles in people's lives. It's not always about optimizing for social impact. So I think we have to give ourselves a a little bit of a sort of a pass. pass. That's great. Like philanthropy can play lots of different roles in our lives. And sometimes you're giving, it's almost like an impulse buy, right? You're, you're at the checkout line at the supermarket and you brought your own bag and the person says, Hey, would you like to donate your bag credit? Sure. 
right? You, you didn't just spend a lot of time researching that. It seems like a sort of decent enough worthy cause. Or sometimes we give because um, a friend serves on a board. We know this organization means a lot to her. And we're really giving not to optimize for social impact, but to support a friend. Right. And because um, we know, by the way, that when we send out our invitations for the boards that we sit on, they're going to support us. Yeah, exactly. So I think those are, and, and sometimes we give us a thank you, right? Flat right. out thank you because a hospital took great care of my mom or my alma mater is a place for, to which I'm forever grateful because of the, both the education and the relationships I made there. So that's just to give you a sense of philanthropy plays lots of different roles and serves lots of different purposes. So one way to think of it is we all have our philanthropic portfolio. Just like everybody has their financial portfolio. And when you think of your financial portfolio, there are different goals you might have, and there are different ways that you can make sure you're re reaching those goals. Same thing with a philanthropic portfolio. There are different roles philanthropy plays, and one role it can play is to do more good in the world. And there's a portion of your philanthropy that you can be quite intentional about how it's going to do more good in the world, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're not using philanthropy in all the other ways I described. In fact, you know, I, I've been doing this work now for over 10 years. I still don't think I've met somebody who I would describe as 100% pure, high-impact philanthropic practice. <laughs> um, Except maybe Warren okay. Buffett. I mean, boy, I, I saw him give an interview yesterday morning, and uh, he was with Jane Pauley on her Sunday morning show. Yeah. Um, and, and he seems so intentional and so numbers-oriented about everything. Well, and I think that's the thing. Oh, is it about everything? Has he never bought cookies from a Girl Scout? Because oh, I'm sure like he's the right bought cookies from a Girl Scout. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so going back, going back to my definition of philanthropist, right? It's about using your resources in some way to do good. Um, what that good is can look different and and can be very diverse. And um, and so that's what I mean by um. Not every part of our philanthropic lives has to be about an intentional optimizing for social impact. Is, that, is there a percentage that you tend to say should be? Like if we're dividing up our investment portfolio into um, stocks and bonds and cash, we, we have numbers that we try to adhere to. Should there right. be, is it 80% that we should be earmarking for those more intentional gifts with 20% left to make the impulse gifts? Yeah. So we really think about high impact philanthropy as a practice and you've got to start somewhere. So we're not super keen on saying it must be this percent or that percent because it really depends on where you're starting and what your goals are. Um, and, I, you know, I guess the only generic answer I can give is there is always opportunity to do more. There's always opportunity to have more impact. Um, and I think from wherever you're starting, some people have never thought intentionally about their philanthropic portfolio. So start and maybe it is 20% this year and maybe you'll you'll get the bug and you'll see how much change you're able to create and you'll increase it, right? To 50%, but it's 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 a muscle that you have to flex. And so I would never say, "Oh, go 100% if you've actually never even thought about your giving that way before." That makes total sense. I I want to take a 
brief moment to remind everybody that important conversations like this one are brought to you by Fidelity Investments because Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives. And one of the ways we can take charge is by exercising our power in choosing um, rather than just reacting to the causes that we want to support. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Kat Rosquetta. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times. And that includes getting married, getting divorced, starting a new career. Again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. We are happy to be back with Kat Rosquetta. She is the founding executive director of the Center for High Impact Philanthropy at the University of Pennsylvania. So once you've decided that you're going to give, what are your best suggestions for how to choose a charity? I mean, if you're looking in the field of cancer, even in breast cancer, you're going to see so many different competing organizations. How do you sort them out? I think you need to start with getting clarity on what is the social impact goal. If you could wave a magic wand, what's the change in the world you would like to contribute to? Because it, it starts there. We have an expression on our team. If um, if you don't know where you're headed, then sort of any path will get you there. It's the same thing with philanthropy. What What's the ultimate goal that you hope your, your giving can achieve? Then once you have that clarity, it's about understanding, well, what are the organizations working in that area? Right. And although there are a million organizations, a million plus in the United States that are registered, um, depending on the geography, the population, the particular aspect of the problem you want to solve, you know, th- then you can start narrowing down. Um, the good news for donors today, as opposed to donors, say, 15, even 20 years ago, once you figured out Okay, this is a change I want to create, and here are the organizations, and you, and you can go to free and available sources like GuideStar, which is the largest provider of information on nonprofits in the world. You can get a select set um, based on, again, population, geography, whatever you care about. Then it's about looking to um, whether or not there is some evidence that this organization is actually making progress. And there's lots of ways to understand if the organization is making progress. Um, One is to see, do they have information on their website? Do they have program evaluations? If, for example, you're interested in cancer and and you've had family or or you yourself have have been affected by cancer, what are the organizations that helped you? Right. Beneficiary um, experience is a great source of evidence for whether or not an organization is worth supporting. Um, Those are the kinds of things that that help you understand. Stand, if I give money to this organization, does it know how to translate that money into good? We used to say or we used to feel that we could look at something called the program ratio, that the percentage of the money that was going directly to the mission rather than to covering administrative expenses and that that was a good barometer. Yeah. Is it anymore? Um, you know what? It, not only is it a very poor barometer. It never really was. And, and this gets to sometimes people forget the history of information on nonprofits. So there was a time where nonprofits really were a black box to most donors. Unless you were volunteering or on the board or worked for one, it was really hard to understand what was going on in the million nonprofits registered in the United States. 
Then along came organizations like GuideStar and Charity Navigator and other places that wanted to shine light into the nonprofit world so that donors could make better informed decisions. And at the time, and now we're going back 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. the only type of information that was broadly available on most nonprofits was the information from their tax forms. So this is a classic example of people started looking at where the light was, not looking at what was actually meaningful for making decisions. So from the tax forms, you can pull out things like overhead ratios, the the ratio between administrative costs and so-called program costs. But really, all that tells you is how much a nonprofit has reported two years ago on what they are spending in one accounting category versus another accounting category. It doesn't tell you, given what they spend on all categories, what are they achieving? And at the end of the day, that's what donors need to understand. So this notion of looking at program versus administrative is a holdover from when there was almost no information on nonprofits. Really, what you're trying to understand, given what they spend, what do they achieve? And I can tell you, accounting categories and where they happen to put spend doesn't really tell you what they're achieving, given the resources that they've got. Okay. All right. It's interesting that things have really, really changed, which is, yeah. is great because they've, they've changed for the better. And I think millennials are changing things as well. I, I have two kids, one out of college, one in college, and my daughter on, they, they've both been involved in, in sororities, fraternities, and, and philanthropy is a huge part of that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, I mean, that the donors today, Um, people who are just starting on their philanthropic path have access to so many tools and information that can help them get to impact faster and with more confidence. I mean, um, our, our center was created now about 10 years ago to do just that. Um, And a lot of our guidance and information is not only available for free on our website, but is being delivered by other players in the space like Fidelity Charitable, the largest donor advised fund. I mean, think about it. There's social media, there are intermediaries like ours, and there are even financial intermediaries that are actually saying, hey, this is important enough to our account holders that we want to make sure they have some of the best information on how to give well. I mean, that is a completely different environment than what existed for donors even 10 years ago. Well, I think that's interesting. And I think it's a very interesting question to ask right now in light Mm. of the changes that are happening in the tax world. I actually have a Fidelity donor advised fund. And and for people who are not familiar with donor advised funds, it's an investment account for charity. And so you contribute money into this account whenever you want to make the contribution. And then when you want to give it away, you give it away, but they don't have to happen in the same year and the money can be invested to grow in between. But with the changes coming down the pike, as it looks like in taxes, one of the things I was wondering about is should people be heavying up if they can on their charitable contributions this year, knowing that they probably won't itemize or some of them will not itemize and therefore deduct them next year. It's interesting. Our our team doesn't really focus on the tax issues and implications of charitable giving. But what we do see is that when there is a change in tax law, it tends to shift the timing of when people allocate funds to charitable activities. 
Okay. All right. Well, we will take a closer look at that in our Thrive segment coming up. But for now, I just um, I want to say thank you for being with us. If you had to sum it up and tell people three things that they need to know in order to go out and, and make gifts with the most impact during the rest of this season, what would they be? There are three tips that we encourage every donor to think about if what they're trying to do is make the most out of their charitable giving. The first is to get clear on what's your social impact goal. What's the difference in the world you would love your charitable gift to make? Um, Because once you have that clarity, it's much easier to find organizations that are working towards that same goal. Okay. the second is pay attention to the right metrics. Uh, historically, there have been a lot of attention paid to, well, is what's the percentage of um, going to uh, program-related expenses versus overhead-related expenses or administrative expenses? And nonprofits are just like any other organization, right? They have a different sets of expenses, and what you want to judge them on is given everything that they're spending. What are they achieving? And there's um, this gets to the third tip, which is do a little research. The good news is that there are more and more sources of authoritative, free information about both causes and the nonprofits working towards those causes. Um, We have a lot of it curated already on the Center for High Impact Philanthropy's website, which is www.impact.upenn.edu. And we refer to a lot of other places if you can't find what you're looking for there. So I'd say focus on impact, pay attention to um, results and bang for buck, and take advantage of the free and available information out there because just a little bit of research can go a long way in helping you find the right organizations to support. Fantastic. Kat Rosketta, thank you so much. Great advice. We will look forward to having you back and happy, happy holidays. Thanks. Same to you, Jean. We are back, and Kelly has joined me in the studio. Hello. Hi, Jean. Nice to see you. Good to see you, too. You were saying while we were at break mm-hmm. that your weekend reminded you of this conversation. Yeah, it was really fitting. On Saturday, I went to my friend's husband's charity event for Sloan Cancer Center, mm-hmm. and I, without thinking, just donated the the ask at the door And I didn't think twice about a lot of the things we discussed today about like how that money is going to be specifically used. But I also didn't care because I love them and I know this cause is important to them. And I just didn't even think twice about the tactical or mechanics of the money. Well, I think that that is part of what Kat was saying. And I do it all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember years ago, one of the first times I was ever invited to a charitable event, my friend wrote on the invitation, this is the price of friendship. Wow. And, you know, and I, because I didn't grow up in a family where, I mean, my parents were very charitable, but it wasn't really around events. It Mm -hmm. wasn't you go to my event, I go to your event. It was more of writing checks at the end of the month or at the end of the year. And it took a little getting used to getting into the swing of things. And I think the older you get, the more you sort of understand that everybody 
in your close inner circle has causes that are just as important to them as yours are to you. Mm-hmm. And you support each other, or at least you ask each other for support. I've also had the other conversation really interesting with a friend recently about uh, she was trying to raise money. She was was doing a, a race, and she sent out asks to a lot of people, and one person did not respond. And she got a little outraged and said, well, I know they can afford it. And I said, you don't get to do that. You do not get to do that. You, First of all, nobody knows what is going on in somebody else's financial life and what their financial pressures are. But they may have actually decided that they were going to go forward with some sort of high-impact plan for their giving. They may have planned all their giving, and they may have decided that although this cause is important to you, there are other causes that are more important to them. And so my feeling is it's always okay to ask. It's not okay to throw a fit when somebody says no. I agree with that. And do you know if they ever connected and had that conversation? I think they didn't. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Kelly says, hmm. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, interesting. Well, I think we should do more on this yeah. because this is a money conversation. Oh, it is. It's a big money conversation. And it's a really emotional one as we're talking about right now. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. We will do more about that. But right now we're going to answer some of your questions. Okay. Our first question this week is from Eileen. She writes, we are looking into buying a new vehicle soon and we're wondering if now is a good time to buy or are the deals going to get better? Oh, now is a really good time to buy. End of the year. Oh. End of the year, baby, is the best <laughs> time to buy a car. I sound like a car dealer. I'm yeah, going into too. my shtick, right? No, end of December is the best time to buy a car because car dealers are up against their end of the month quotas and their end of the year quotas. And I, I just actually pulled all these numbers together for a segment that I was doing on today. So I do know December is the month that has the most incentives in play, manufacturer incentives, dealer incentives to buy a car. February, by the way, is the worst. So the deals are not going to get better. Um, And if you want to have a peek at what sort of incentives are out there, really easy to find. I like Edmunds.com. So just go on there and search incentives. I remember when I was a baby reporter for you and I was doing my first car piece that part of this is because they need to make room for the new cars on a lot. And some of them are still rolling out. That tends to happen more in the fall. Okay, But yeah, they're making room, but they're also, they're just up against these year end numbers. You know, it's a little bit like having to do better than you did the year before. And is there any difference for used versus new here? Or does this rule apply to all cars? It's mostly new. At least the numbers that I was looking at were regarding new cars. But I think if you want to get a deal on a used car, you could go for that as well. Okay. 
Good luck, Eileen. Let us know. Next, we have one from Laura. I just started a new job, and I'm struggling to decide what to do with my retirement savings. I had a 401k with my previous employer. My new employer does not match in the first year of employment for a 401k, so I considered rolling over my funds into a Roth IRA for a higher return. What's the best course of action to take, 401k or Roth? So the question in and of itself is a little confusing, and here's why. 401ks and Roth IRAs are both accounts. Sometimes people get confused that they're investments in and of themselves. They're, they're the buckets. And once you've got your money in those buckets, you can invest them in a variety of ways to generate a greater return. And so my confusion with this question is, If you're not satisfied with the investment options in your prior employer's 401k, or if you feel the the fees are really digging into your return because they're too high, then yes, you may want to move the money into a Roth IRA or an IRA in order to improve the options that you have available to you. Understand, if you move the money into a Roth from a traditional 401k, that's a taxable event. You're going to have to pay taxes on the gains. So you want to be aware of that and you want to make sure that you have the money to pay those taxes without digging into the balance of your retirement funds. You could roll into a traditional IRA, doesn't have to be a Roth, or you could simply leave them where they are. So I wonder if she thought that rolling it over into her new 401k with her employer, that it wouldn't grow at all because they're not matching? No, I think she may think she's not eligible for that 401k at this point. Got it. Um, but you could also move it into your new 401k. I mean, there are reasons to roll over. Mm-hmm. Um, and a big reason in my book is administrative ease. I like being able to go to one website, see my investments with one sign in mm-hmm. and know that I'm able to look at the full picture. And so once people have switched jobs several times, it's very likely that they've got orphan 401ks hanging out at all these different employers. And at some point, you just get tired of all those logins and you want to bring them all together. I like orphan 401ks. I didn't make that up. Oh, I was going to say you should make that. <laughs> that should be your thing if it's not anyone else's. I think um, it might be somebody else's. We'll do one more from Jennifer. Okay. She writes, my brother-in-law wants to start buying stocks for my children as presents, which is awesome, but he mentioned doing it through Robinhood. But I have to believe there is a better way to give stocks. Do you have any suggestions? I mean, Robinhood is a fine, low-cost way to buy stocks. There are some companies set up specifically for the purpose of buying a single share or two for your kids, stockpile, give a share. I mean, those are the companies that are set up for that specific purpose. And so, Jennifer, I'd say take a look at those, but I'd also say look at your objectives. Is this something that you're going to do on a regular basis? If so, you want to keep your costs as low as possible rather than necessarily trying to wrap up one share in a pretty package. And so I would say, look at your objectives and try to line those up. Great. Thank you, Jean. You are very welcome. And as we wrap up this show, we talked with Kat Raschetta about charitable giving. And I mentioned the notion of the coming 
tax bill. Now, it is still a bill. As Kelly and I sit in the studio, it is still a bill. It's not a law that may have changed by the time you're actually listening to this. But one of the things that we know is that the standard deduction um, is likely to go up for singles to $12,000, for couples to $24,000, and for heads of households to somewhere in between. In the past, if you itemized rather than taking the lower standard deduction, you may look at these new levels and you may start to think, oh, it makes more sense for me to actually take this higher standard deduction going forward into the future. That's going to be true for many, many people. But one of those things that you may want to do in advance of that happening before the end of this year, and again, we don't know if these changes are going to kick in for 2018 or for 2019 at this point, is accelerating some of those deductible items into 2017 if you've got some free cash in order to make sure that you have the ability to write them off while you're still itemizing. So these are things like payment of state and local income taxes, like medical expenses if you can have procedures done before the end of the year rather than after the end of the year, and like charitable contributions. So for example, if you usually gave $1,000 to your alma mater, your favorite cancer charity, and you think under the new set of rules, you might potentially be taking the standard deduction every single year, you may want to accelerate making those charitable contributions. And if you don't want to give all the money to the charity at once, one way to do it is to kick some money into a donor-advised fund like we were talking about, let the money grow from within the fund, and make the payouts to your charity over time. You get the deduction for making the contribution in the year that you make the contribution to the donor-advised fund. So I hope that that is clear. I know that taxes are confusing and confounding Founding, and we will dig into them as we get clarity on what exactly is going to happen. But before the end of the year, these are important things to think about. Thanks so much for listening to me today on Her Money. Thanks to Kat Rosquetta from the Center for High Impact Philanthropy at Penn for a terrific conversation. Thank you to our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join me next time when we will be talking to the woman that Forbes magazine called the second most powerful woman in America. She did it twice. I'm talking about Sheila Bear, who used to head up the FDIC. We've got a great conversation with her coming your way, and we'll talk soon. <laughs>